0: Uh, I was thinking this evening about the last the last four months uh, and what I would do sometimes particularly when I was alone and Sometimes sitting, more often like lying down and then just letting my my body follow. My feelings, whatever whatever feelings were coming up. Worry, concern, fear, apprehension, unknowing, uncertainty, uh, interest. Confidence. Uh, And then I'd I'd let my body do whatever it wanted to do. I'd just really relax and give it permission. And sometimes I just would, I'd feel it just like protect myself. My arms would cross and protect my chest, heart, my legs would fold up. or just pull my knees in, just do all these things where I would pay attention to the movement and the sensations and the feeling, just kind of follow along through that sensate path, road. And I could connect it to a lot of times being alone in practice in the monasteries, that I practiced in. Um, and I, don't, I, I can't remember doing exactly the same things. It's a little awkward if you're wearing robes and <laughs> um, just the feeling at a monastic space. Don't always feel like you have that complete privacy mean, you one acts the way that one wants to um, be in the world and and it's not always safe to to show that kind of vulnerability that kind of openness but nevertheless I I do remember being in the monastery and and going into in allowing my body to contract that way you know, to pull in and then when it was ready to open up again, pull in and open up uh, with or without my limbs. It's kind of going into those defensive postures or protective um, moves and trying to, to feel into exactly what was happening, you know, what's what's really kind of going on and... Generally, I could find I could find a theme. You know, I try to stay away from the stories and, and distill it down to a particular event. In, in the case of the last four months, you know, that's not too difficult to do. Just go in there and all the things that I had. You know, I have not yet expressed from that because sort of still in it. I'm still raw. I'm still going through it. Still quite vulnerable. Still feel like that protective uh, response, inclination, instinct. Uh, and then I remembered my uh, a schoolmate and childhood friend, this Hawaiian man who was... The first, the first Hawaiian in 600 years to relearn the art of navigation without instruments, uh, blue water navigation that is sailing across the Pacific nation without just using the stars and the currents and his first journey to Tahiti as a solo navigator and having been terrified of the doldrums, which are unpredictable. Uh, they, they can be absolutely still and, and nothing going on, just this uh, wet stillness, hot and sweaty. Or it can be madness, it can be dark and intense, ocean waves wind and so forth and that's just what they smacked into was going too fast and and suddenly entering like almost crashing into the this wind force wind wall and waves and cloud cover uh, so that the moon that he had been using to guide disappeared and he went into a Complete panic, uh, and for a while, nobody knew it was happening, no one expected it. It was like a sudden crash, and, and people are looking around what to do, and they're looking around for leadership. Uh, and Nainoa held all this responsibility of leadership, you know, he's left alone as the navigators are, they're often. Only sleeping four hours a day, and uh, they're left they're left totally alone since they have to go deep inside to know where, what's going on, to feel to feel the currents and to feel the signs of nature, figure out how to navigate them. In this case, to Tahiti, and he realized that all eyes were on him, and, and he did the equivalent. You know, he had a wet weather jacket kept him dry but not warm. So he was really cold and he was telling us that he wrapped it around his body and you know, just held himself in this way and shaking with fear for quite some time. And then, And then this physical warmth began to rise up from his feet and up his body in that way and warm the area around his navel, um, which is where instinct is in, in Polynesian spirituality, the, the pico Pico is the center, also the canoe. And take a few breaths, take a few deep breaths. Try and unravel all that protective armor. And he said, I don't know how, but I just knew where the moon was. And he gave directions to uh, the steer person and they took a direction, mm-hmm. and let the winds of the doldrums take, take them away and take them out of that. And then sometime later, the clouds cleared just briefly for a a minute or two and he looked and he saw the moon and it was just where he thought it was and that gave him confidence that that was like in the late 70s he's never forgotten that it's been his guiding principle all along the way that that single experience So I, I, th- I thought I would talk tonight about uh, faith and a few other qualities and I quickly wrote out a talk and I brought a whole other set of notes w- when I came. So they're quite useless. <laughs> so I'm just gonna fold up like this for the next 40 minutes <laughs> and then we'll just go on with our practice. <laughs> I will say what I directly know about faith and an emotion that I felt before I knew what it was, if that's possible. I lived in Japan um, and for a year. went there in the first grade. I was six years old. It's my family from Honolulu. And there were those... My first immersion in another culture, outside of the Hawaii culture. And uh, there were a great number of imprints that have lasted my, my life. But one of them was uh, near where we lived, in a place called Yokuska, is, uh, is Kamakura, uh, and a renowned temple and Buddha. Kamakura Buddha that's been there since the twelfth century uh, and it's been hit by earthquakes, several several tsunamis, washed everything away, every single thing except the Buddha. The Buddha's remained all that time there <clears throat> and i I remember it so clearly that that when my after my mom passed away um, a little over 10 years ago. My sister found some photos, and then when I turned 70, she, she sent me photos every day leading up to my birthday. And one of them was a picture of her and I in our Japanese kimono uh, with the Kamakura Buddha exactly as I remembered it behind us. And it just was a real affirmation that my memory was really intact. That imprint left no fuzzy edges. Um, So aside from the the Buddha itself and everything around it that's now different because I I went back on like a solo um, sojourn a few years ago to see to see what it was like and the Buddha itself had not, hadn't changed still exactly as I recall it and everything around it changed including what the people wore people wore very traditional clothes all those years ago when I was six uh, including the wooden gaitas this day they're wearing western clothes a few of them Uh, for their visit to Kamakura, wear the traditional kimono and dress in the traditional way. So that was awesome to see uh, that the remnants of that vibrant culture that I recall. The emotion that I witnessed and felt before I knew what it was, was faith. And um, what I witnessed and what I felt was just these men and women that showing this, these profound gestures, also, which I won't pretend that I could remember, you know, respect, I'm sure, you know, and honor and reverence. You know all those things I just don't know I just didn't know what they meant at that time. Um, Bowing and putting flowers there at the foot of the Buddha, candles, offerings like that. I I saw all this and it was just really remarkable to me, just amazing. I don't know if I asked my parents about that or not. What, What matters is that I just remember the feeling the profound feeling. And, you know, a few other things. You could walk inside. You still can. You can go inside. The Buddha on the side, there's stairways. And you can walk up, because it's quite high. And I remember uh, asking my parents when we went inside and went, went up, and we're, you know, about here, in the chest. And I asked my mom, well, where's its stomach? And I looked up, and... The head part was also hollow. Where's its brain? You know? <laughs> where, where are its parts? You know, It was empty. So those two things I remember. The expression of what I later came to know as faith and the fact that it was completely empty of anything inside. It was just this edifice that people paid this profound respect to and felt some deep gratitude I'm sure. And when I went back, I spent a couple hours there and I was in the back next to a cottage they have back there. It was donated from Korea, like like a nun's kuti, the meditation hut. And I just sat there for two hours. And then then i th- i felt like i i think i came here for what i needed to come here for and and all in all i feel i feel satisfied it was everything important was still there as i recall it and i didn't expect to find much more and part of me you know was longing for that 6 year old who was so moved and changed and uh whose life was influenced at that age to become who he is today. Uh, so it was like paying honor to that six-year-old, whoever, whoever he is or was, <laughs> wherever he might be. And with those thoughts, I just started to walk out and uh, walked out uh, to, the r- to the right side of the Buddha, the Kamakura Buddha, And I took one look back over my left shoulder and saw it from from that view that I hadn't seen before. And then just at that time, looking and kind of turning to go back, walk back to where I was staying, um, it was as real as if that six-year-old was right next to me. The the sense of his presence, and his his hand reaching up for mine, and all the more real because I felt all these tears, you know, and I felt he had been waiting for me, and and I felt the grown me felt, oh, I found him. He's still here, you know, and felt like I took his hand and then we walked out of there, walked out of there together, feeling complete, feeling fulfilled. fulfilled. And knowing now uh, what I do know about about faith, without which we couldn't do this practice. Um, The the Pali word satta Sadda means um, uh, to place one's heart upon, which is largely how I, I felt my life leading me along. You know, I was looking for something to put put my heart upon, and it became a pretty early spiritual journey from about the age of 16 thanks to Jack Kerouac and on the road and continued to be that until hearing of this lineage and knowing this was the lineage and then finding my way to Burma (coughs) and then an unexpected, unexpected meeting of Sayadaw Upandita. Uh, and, and a couple of the very first things I remember him saying were, in, in welcome in, in his welcoming me there, to his monastery, um, he, he said, "Your only job is to be in the present moment. I'll take care of everything else." This is exactly how it was. And he found lay supporters for my robes and necessities and medicines and so forth and fed and sheltered, given teachings. And I felt completely looked after and didn't have to raise a finger to do anything at all. And it it was my only job to be in the present moment. which which, which we know can be excruciatingly painful to do at times. It's so much more than the the cliche of someone just saying, uh, just be in the present, just be in the present. Uh, As Jesse was implying last night, who wants to really be in the present? <laughs> Given that it's continually slipping through our fingers and you know nothing is secure, there's nothing there to hold on to. So unstable. But that's exactly what we're meant to find out. Because there is security in, in the truth. That's the only place that there's ultimate security. Um, things as they, as they truly are. So faith is mentioned often and, <coughs> and say it all. <coughs> The other thing I remember him saying early on was that all, all of practice is the awakening and developing of faith. The whole Our whole life of spiritual practice is about cultivating this faith mind and sustaining it in fact, what's called unshakable faith is a synonym for nibbana. Just keep following, keep following our own our own faith, making the practice our own, which is what we're asked to do. The teachers, we ask you to do that. Uh, our teachers asked us to do that. The Buddha. Asked his disciples to do that. Make the practice your own. Don't listen to me. Don't believe me. Uh, just take the skeleton keys of, of the bare bones practice and, and go to a hut, go to the foot of a tree, go into the forest and find find out for yourself what's true. Until we have are able to do that, our faith can become what's called um, blind faith, or bright faith, Upandita called it. And, and bright faith is when we feel a lot of inspiration from something, something we read or something we see or something we hear, gives us you know, goosebumps and uh, gives us a charge and we get excited about it and go buy a bunch of books and look at plane fares to you know, Burma or Thailand or something, and go to a couple of day-long retreats, and even long, even more, even a number of retreats we can do, and, and still be, still have our our faith conditional, that is tied in to what's outside, the teacher or the teachings, something outside of ourself. The true measure of a a good teacher is is someone who mirrors mirrors our own wisdom and allows for that wisdom in us to arise and and manifest and and, and be our guide of what practice to do, how to do it, Mm -hmm. how much energy we have at any one practice session, and the respect that we might call up to know when we've done enough for that moment, for that practice period. And then, you know, take rest or or turn away from what might be really painful, difficult, overwhelming, too vulnerable. So to become genuine faith, to be confirmed comes through our own practice then through our own practice if, if we start seeing what it is we've heard or read uh, and it seems to be true we, we start to learn that the body isn't the conceptual body the idea of it we've had we have carried all our lives but it, it's just this dance of elemental Elemental nature, hard and soft, and cool and and uh, warm and and uh, hot, and cold and fluid and cohesive, and f- firm, tense, moving, oscillating, vibrating. That's about it. That's the whole body. That's everything that we can experience that's true about the body. Anything else is just descriptive and conceptual. My hand is this, my head is such and such, you know, and uh, look in the mirror or all the ways that we conceptualize and hold an idea of our body, it's useful. You know, it's, it's useful to be able to talk about the body when we see our doctors and, uh, or if we're you know, doing a fashion show or whatever. It's useful to have some idea. That, you know, this body, we can hang clothes off it and do various things with it, surf with it, sleep with it. And, uh, but that, to discern, to know the difference between <clears throat> concepts which are, are, are useful... Tool, words are a designator and the reality is a difference between being awake or in spiritual slumber <clears throat> I found out I found out early in practice I think because of the degree of natural faith I already had and then finally had a place to put it and then I started to understand what it really was and a lot more than then simply the emotion the, that, that emotion had has great affect on everything else we do. Um, that I I had to act on it and, and and I did and and I understood that there's a difference between being alive and awake. Just awake, not in terms of liberation, but just. Really pre- Really alert, really, really present, able to listen to our own voice, our own uh, emotions, our own bodies, sensations and emotions and so forth, and to others. It felt so important to me that I, I, ju- I didn't want to go back to sleep. And that's kind of how I f- found my way to this practice you know and to Burma and someone as as powerful a teacher as Upandita was who was all about being awake and mindful all the time and could tell the moment you walked in the door whether whether one was awake or asleep partially awake you know how present how attentive how mindful they really were um so that that led me to doing the practice and having enough experience of body bodily nature and mental emotional nature come and go and having just little glimpses that emotion can just be emotion and sensations just sensations they don't have to be mine they don't have to belong anywhere or to anyone um and and how what mindfulness really was, how it can only be mindful of what's coming up right now. Can't be mindful of what hasn't come up. It can't be mindful of what's already gone. That's reflection. That's back to thinking mind. Uh, and how valuable it was. You know, I wanted to stay awake. The, the story of. Gotama or Siddhartha, the Buddha to be, was about him discovering that there was more than the protected life that was imposed on him uh, by his father, or his stepmother. He was so protected that he didn't see the realities of life. He didn't see anything but, you know, he was, he was. Uh, young healthy and alive and knew nothing about old unhealthy or death uh, and those became the poignant moving teachers for him that got him on it that got him out, out of the palace grounds and into the forest to practice called the messengers the heavenly messengers so one day he, he did see, as if for the first time, so the legend goes, uh, an old person and was told by his charioteer that, yeah, that's, that's an old person. And just like him, you'll also get old. Everyone gets old. Uh, it happens. There's no one, no being that does not grow old and then that depressed him and he went back to the, to the palace and an ensuing trip saw someone unwell, sick, diseased and the same conversation yes, that happens that will happen to you and that happens to everyone no one is exempt from that um, aging process where, you, where decay begins and the body begins to fall apart so that also hit him strongly—a like healthy despair, healthy depression. Mahasi Sayadaw called a lot of emotions that we generally place in a negative category as spiritual emotions, healthy emotions, including despair and and struggle, spiritual struggle and and. Uh, Sadness, longing you know, are all, they all have their spiritual equivalent, they're not just born of attachment or aversion. So the third time again, then the Siddhartha or Gotama saw uh, a, a body, a corpse, with the same response from the charioteer, Every, everyone dies, Whatever is born will die. No exceptions. That's the nature. Whatever is conditioned and rises, falls away. Uh, So That also hit Siddhartha pretty hard. And he took that back. And it did whatever it did in his body. And on a fourth journey out, they saw a mendicant walking by. more peaceful than peace itself reflected Siddhartha to himself I want that and that's when he decided he would he would leave the palace and that's how he then fulfilled his paramis to become a Buddha though it doesn't say that he knew that at the time so I think He would not have known that at the time. It had been predicted that he would be some great spiritual leader or the ruler of empires, the world, when he was born. uh, That's also part of the lore and perhaps why his his father and stepmom overly protected him from seeing anything difficult, anything painful. But that's what he did. He he went on to, uh, within seven years, he became the Buddha, the awakened one, and started the wheel of the Dhamma rolling so that we have it for ourselves today. We're still in the dispensation of a Buddha, which is a very good, karma, to be born into. We're lucky in that way. And in fact, we're also really lucky to be at this time when there were, in the last 150 years, just this incredible group of nuns, monks, lay women, and laymen, practitioners, who brought brought the teachings out of the monastic system. and into the world, as I mentioned the other night with Mahasi, uh, who was one of the prominent leaders in, in doing that and making it available and putting it in a language and orga- organizing these time-limited retreats that can introduce the Dhamma to those who are wanting to practice and who previously had no access. So we're fortunate. We're, we're fortunate to have this particular period of time. where uh, whatever age we are, we're we're taking it in, and becoming it, making it our own, living that, you know, being the Dharma, and in all its facets. There's a, uh, a as this faith matures and becomes affirmed by our practice and confirmed faith by experientially seeing that the, the body system and mind, emotions are just following their own nature. Uh, they are under no control of our, of our own and they don't belong to anyone. They don't belong to us. They just do what they do as elemental nature, uh, and there are these heart qualities within us that, as I mentioned before, if if we have, uh, if if we're lucky to have awakened in us these spiritual virtues, these paramis that include wisdom and loving kindness, energy, equanimity. Uh, and so forth, that we we there's a path available. There's a path available to everyone if they want it, you know, if they look for it, and they'll find it. And then this this faith grows by degrees, and calls up another quality. Uh, that's similarly disposed to holding us up and holding up that awakeness and that desire to stay awake, that desire not to go back into spiritual slum slumber. It's different than rest, you know. Of course we need rest and need to to check out as often as necessary doing this hard work. Uh, the kinda of, what I mean by spiritual slumber is that kind of give up being on a path of liberation, of awakening, altogether. Uh, I remember how important, the importance that Upandita would place upon noticing the moments of the absence of mindfulness, that how it's just as important as being aware of being mindful Recognizing mindfulness and knowing what mindfulness is is also critical so we know what it isn't. We know that mindfulness is just here and now. It doesn't judge, doesn't identify. It, It is its nature to disidentify and just mirror exactly kind of what's happening. It also draws in wisdom which differentiates it from the commercial mindfulness that's out in the world. This is a mindfulness with a, uh, from the beginning, in the context of the awakening factors Michelle was talking about, or the Eightfold Path um, that arises only because of wisdom and only because there's already some wisdom in that first moment of mindfulness. And then it just gets stronger and stronger until it becomes a wisdom awareness continuous wisdom awareness so that for fairly long moments at a time we're seeing the reality the as it is nature of things we're called yata bhuta meaning simply as it is nothing extra just as it is no thoughts about it no history no proliferation no expansion on it just the as it is every time we're aware our feeling of an emotion, a sensation, uh, a thought. Being aware of of thinking uh, is a reality. Thinking is real. What we think about is not. The story that thoughts weave together is not real. It's conceptual. Thinking is a sense door, like hearing. So thinking is real. Just like hearing isn't the bird, isn't the wind, and the cedars and the firs. It's just hearing. To differentiate that is the difference between concepts and reality. So thought, thinking process is real. What we think about and the thoughts that weave stories are not real. Seen is real, light is entering our body, just like sounds enter the body. Uh, what we think, the, the, the labels that we give to what we see are conceptual, tree, person, building, ocean, sky, sea. Useful designators to know what a tree is compared to a person or a building or the sky or the sea. But that discernment of, of what's a useful designator and what's actually happening in the moment is, is critical to st- that staying awake and not going back into spiritual slumber. So when Sayadaw would, would comment about my reports of being aware of how much I wasn't aware, which is most of the time. If we're talking really in the definition of mindfulness that I'm giving you tonight, uh, as Jesse and Michelle have said, and Pari in the individual interviews, very, very little are we actually aware. But it's so powerful, those moments of being aware are so powerful, it, it negates a million unaware moments. So it's worth it. If we come here and we're, we're truly mindful once or twice in every practice session a day, we have a good retreat. You're genuinely aware and we see for a moment that this is just sensations. It's not I, me, or mine. It's just emotion. It's just fear, vulnerability, happiness and sadness, longing and contentment not I, not me, not mine, not grasping, not chasing after it or avoiding. But just little, those little glimpses are wisdom awareness. Eventually there are practice sessions of a week or two or a month or two where that wisdom awareness goes for quite some time and you know, unveils a lot of the, the the illusion that covers our our mental processes—you know how we process, how we see things—and immediately proliferate. So mostly we're taking we're we're taking breaths and steps into a fabricated world from the moment we wake up. Oh, what time is it? Where am I? Oh yeah, I'm at a retreat. I've got to get up. I've got to get to the sitting. I've got to go brush my teeth. And, you know, where's my sandals, my slippers, my shirt? You know, we're all, all, immediately we're proliferating about where we are, who we are, what we're doing here. And uh, every once in a while, we wake up and we're mindful of lying there. And we feel the body lying there. We're aware of remnant dream feelings, dream states, you know, still we kind of lie there and maybe we hear some sounds. And then if we're really there, we might be aware, aware of the intention to get up, pull the covers aside and stretch the body, get up, maybe do some more stretches, get dressed, go have our tea, coffee, or two coffees, or two teas, or coffee and tea, and whatever. <laughs> Come to the early morning sit, you know, with, with pari, and, and, then, and then the day unfolds. And we're mindful for some steps, and we're off proliferating for a lot more of them. You know, we look around. Uh, we're aware sometimes of looking, and then we're aware of seeing. And then we're aware of liking or disliking, attachment or non-attachment. Uh, but most of the time, we're looking around and we're not aware that we're looking around. We see something we're not aware of seeing. And immediately something comes to our eye and it reminds us of something else. The tulip reminds us of our own garden or a good friend or whatever. And the mind is just its off. It's off and running for a while. You know, at a certain point, oh, okay, thinking, 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 and mindful again. Mindful again. few moments of genuine mindful wisdom awareness is more powerful than a million unmindful moments. And it's accumulative. It's a very impactful karma As long as we're alive, everything is conditioned phenomena. What we see, hear, smell, taste, body, the mind, it's all conditioned phenomena. And even the teachings are conditioned phenomena. Uh, The Buddha said, the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path, which is what we're practicing, the path of love and understanding, is conditioned phenomena. But it's the best of condition phenomena he said because it's the comma that ends comma the karma that ends karma right think of that chains are change chains are chains chains whether iron or gold so if we're if we're on a wheel of of unskillful leading to unskillful, then that karmic impactful intention action uh, may lead to another one and another one and so forth. And we may be more or less on a wheel of just finding one difficulty after another. That would be like an iron chain. And then there's... um, Doing good and getting on a, a wheel of goodness, we feel generous. We help people. It feels good. It increases our compassion. We act compassionately. Take care. Uh, we develop meta for all beings everywhere and celebrate in the joys of wherever happiness is, wherever we experience and see them. Instead of envy and, and jealousy, uh, and cultivate a, a, a deep Accepting calm about the as-it-is nature of things, yata bhuta, things are as they are. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to nature, not according to our wishes, and so on. So, Then they do a practice and they cultivate deep inner insight stages, along with the Brahma-vihara's insight starts to loosen the attachments and loosen the attachments and that has an impact an influence on um, ensuing moments until we can live quite mindfully sometimes even you know close to you know like a Deepama for a while a saint But chains are chains, whether iron or, or gold. So the idea is to get off being shackled altogether. Uh, and, and the Buddha did teach that no, no matter how much good we do and how many cycles from goodness to goodness we go, the the impact from past actions can and will lead again to becoming, as Jesse was talking about last night, and all the pain that comes from all that work of becoming again and again, becoming, the the striving and the stress and uh, uh, the dukkha of that. Uh, And so the kama that ends kama is breaking all the chains. So that even now, every time every time we're completely unconditionally mindful, that mind, wisdom awareness, we're not creating new karma. It's karmically neutral. Uh, does that mean we stop being kind and loving and caring and, and uh, joyful and equanimous? No, not at all. It means that those are just native states. Those are natural states that occur more often uh, and with very little need to cultivate them much. They, they just happen. Um, when we're not creating any more karma, it just means we're not shackled into that becoming anything, really good or really bad. We're not shackled into becoming. We just, we just are. And um, there's no mark of an awakened being. The only way I felt, ever really felt, like I might be meeting a completely awakened being was, was when um, Upandita said, oh, I'm, I'm taking you to meet someone tonight. Or likewise, Ulakana, I'm taking you to meet someone at the north end of the Sagain Hills in a monastery. He's 103. It was then that I was pretty confident I or we would be meeting someone quite extraordinary. And whether they were completely liberated or not, you know, nobody can say. Only a Buddha can say. When one, once one is finished with desire and anger, that's saintly to me. And in the system, that's like the th- third stage of awakening. And the fourth is just kind of um, everything else goes away too. Just remaining ignorance and restlessness. Subtle desires for being fall away. In in one case, ulakana Took us to um, uh, the north part of the Sagain Hills. This monastery—it almost seems like, you know, a Shangri-La, something that doesn't really exist in time or space. I don't know if if we could find it again today. <clears throat> but we drove in the hills, and the hills are kind of magical that way. They're rolling and and um, seem to fold in on themselves, so that it'd be quite easy to enter another realm. We definitely entered another realm (laughs) on this day, and and we walked into a room of of light and there was an elder monk, 103 years old. um, He was blind and he could barely barely hear. His attendant had to cup his hands over his ears and literally yell because <laughs> she wanted to know our names and where we're from, you know. Who? Stephen, Stephen, Hawaii, Hawaii. Really, really loud. And, but until he heard it, oh, you know, he wasn't satisfied. And then he'd be quite satisfied. And then he wanted to take each of our hands and hold our hands feel us that way. And then it spoke spoke for quite some time. And uh, uh, I don't know if we know the content of it at all. We remember um, the translations of what he said. It was timeless. I don't know. Maybe we're still there. (laughs) But (laughs) at the end, he, he wanted again to take our hands and he would hold our hands and, and, and he, he gave this like a transmission uh, like a blessing but more like a transformative teaching went right in and he said to each one of us one at a time as so he held our hands May you be free of even one unskillful mind moment. You know wishing us to be completely completely liberated, completely free. So that that added and increased my my faith. So the next time I talk, I'll, um, I'll go into what I had, had planned to talk about tonight, <laughs> which is, and uh, probably could have if I hadn't spent so long on, on faith, but faith and courage and acceptance or patience and simplicity, another term for uh, renunciation, which are the four supports of mindfulness. Let's just sit now and see if you can see, see if you can find that emotion of uh, placing your heart upon something that you, you feel confidence in. Faith, his confidence and his unconditional trust. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.